0: Welcome to Word-by-Word Conversation with the Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Tonight's guest is physicist and novelist Ransom Stevens, with his just-released The Sensory Deception. As a particle physicist, Ransom Stevens worked on experiments at SLAC, Lab, CERN, and Cornell, discovered a new type of matter, and worked on the team that discovered the top quark, During the tech boom that ended in 2001, he directed patent development for a wireless web startup and later became an expert on timing noise. His specialty at the time was the analysis of electrodynamics in high-rate digital systems. His first novel, The God Patent, makes use of Stephen's experiences a physicist, patent director, public speaker, and single father. The novel includes a character loosely based on the physicist Amy Noether. Ransom's newest novel, The Sensory Deception, contains brilliant characters like a migraine-tortured sociopathic neurologist addicted to caffeine, a small-statured uber-geek engineer who doesn't have enough sense not to wear shorts and flip-flops when walking outside in the Minnesota wintertime, a curvaceous Iranian-born Stanford MBA who runs up millions of venture capitalist dollars to finance a new virtual reality experience, and the creative team leader and environmental activist who inherited a spectacular cliffside Santa Cruz house from his parents and then spends most of those millions converting it into a clandestine technology laboratory. Ransom, I'd like to welcome you to Word by Word.
1: Well, thank you, Gil. I really like that introduction. Well, that's turn- one of the best descriptions of of my work I've ever heard, certainly better than I've done. <laughs> well,
0: thank you. I just figured your characters were so unique, uh and you give backstories to most, I think to all of them in fact. We know a little bit about their their childhood and their parents and we learn more as the book goes on. To set the mood, I like to play the introduction from a classic TV series. I played that because as I was reading reading The Sensory Deception, I decided they would make perfect segments for Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. You know what I'm talking about?
1: I think so, yes. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to look at a few of those today. Ostensibly, it's a book about the development of a paradigm-shifting breakthrough in virtual reality, where all people's senses are manipulated so that they experience firsthand what it is like to be Another animal, for instance, like a polar bear. And if you will read the first uh, excerpt for us on page 24. Be happy to. Thank you. I call this Be the Bear.
1: All right. So I begin here. Right. Right where it says start. Her senses tighten. Her eyes focus. She licks her nose and tastes the air. It's salty, yes, but there's something, something she wants. She smells desire. Hunger fills her and she drops to all fours roars again and springs down the other side of the iceberg. She goes too fast, though, loses her grip and rolls. She rolls through pillows of snow. She stretches out her limbs and the rolling becomes sliding on a level plane of ice that ends in crashing ocean waves. A swell pulls her from the ice into the thick green and blue medium. The cold is replaced by an engulfing bath. Not exactly warm, it is wide-awake comfort. She swims under the ice. She sees them. The determination of instinct takes control. Everything is immediate. She distinguishes the seals that are catchable from those that are not. She sees the hole in the ice where the seals rise to breathe. Without resolving the thought, she understands that she is meant to take an older or wounded seal, and not just because it will be easier and thereby leave her enough energy to carry it above the ice to her snowy dining room, She waits and watches, aware that these circumstances are not the usual way of things. The woman who lurks below the senses would not have known this. It is a primal realization. There, a seal with the large dark rings on its back that signify age. It swims with a jerky, unbalanced motion. It has a wounded flipper. She kicks and paddles. The seal scatters to the left, to the right, and below. She has the advantage of surprise and overwhelming strength. Her target struggles behind the others. Reaching across its back with one arm, she pulls it toward her and takes its head in her mouth. It struggles. She clamps down. It stiffens for an instant and goes limp. Her momentum carries her to the hole in the ice. She kicks and kicks again, accelerating. And with the seal in her mouth, she bursts from the water and slides up on the surface. She drops the seal and takes a deep breath. The smell of warm, bleeding seal flesh is hunger incarnate, she eats. The juicy flesh melts in her mouth, the taste more wonderful than the smell. It is prime rib that has roasted for hours, charred skin surrounding tender red meat. Deep in her mind, for just an instant, the sensual sensual saturation diminishes enough that her mind is able to resolve a coherent human thought. It is so good she doesn't even want horseradish.
0: <laughs> OK. Going to have to give a setup for this. Why do we have a lady named Gloria turning into a polar bear?
1: <laughs> well, Gloria is, Gloria is a venture capitalist scout in Silicon Valley. And her task is to evaluate this virtual reality product that has been invented by this team of three scientists and engineers. So their demo – is a virtual reality experience of a polar bear. And the polar bear uh, came about – that was actually how I got the idea for this book. Years ago, I was reading the newspaper and came upon the story of a polar bear that had swum 200 miles looking for ice and washed ashore in Iceland Mm -hmm. and then was killed by police. And so I had this notion that what if people could really feel what it was like to be that polar bear searching for ice and not being able to find it, then finally making landfall in a completely foreign place with foreign smells and sounds and then being shot. So that was the the basis for the polar bear as the demo for this startup company, Vertex
0: Reality. Right. And vertex reality is going to make everyone become ecologically aware because, they, for example, the polar bear, which is endangered because of the polar ice melt and has to swim that 200 miles, which obviously the bear never intended to do. And Gloria as the bear ends up doing and you know a few minutes later. Um, and this is all happening in her mind because she's wearing a virtual reality, what, headset kind of setup? With so in the demo – which,
1: which is, comes about before all of the technology is developed. Yeah, she's wearing a prototype gear. And the prototype gear is designed to stimulate all of her senses, this, including the senses of smell and as well as they can, the sense of taste through the sense of smell. But, of course, mostly through vision and audio. Mm-hmm. So she's set in front of a, a huge, um, very high-def video screen. That encompasses not just her motion or rather not just her, her field of view but just outside of her field field of view too so that they can manipulate her senses to draw her attention where they want it. And that way they can give the illusion that she can – is free to move in any direction she wants and to to um, pursue whatever, whatever desire she has as her senses are overwhelmed with those of – the experience of a polar bear.
0: Right. And she's hooked up in more than one way. She doesn't just see it and hear it. She also has a monitor attached to her skin. Um, and part of that is a biofeedback kind of loop, which involves pharmaceuticals. Well, in this in this scene, it doesn't.
1: The pharmaceuticals... I thought they
0: were able to manipulate. So this taste, for instance, of roast beef, if she didn't like that, it could be chicken. So how do they do that? So the way that that's done is – Well, I mean if if this were real. Is, right. OK. Yes. Well, a lot of the development of the book, a lot
1: of the fun parts for me were thinking of how, how to make this technology without, of course, the burden of actually having to design it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a biometric feedback system that monitors her pulse rate, her perspiration, um, eye movement and blood circulation in the nose and around the throat. Mm-hmm. So if – if when she when she'd first had that seal if the smell of roast beef which they transmitted through a gentle breeze into into the room where she was mm-hmm. if that hadn't triggered some salivation then they would have immediately switched to fried chicken and if that hadn't worked then it, the demo wouldn't have been as effective but prime rib worked for gloria right. in that scene right. But it is – it's stimulating every sense and so temperature is one, making her uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable as she swam from Ice Flow to
0: Iceland mm-hmm. over, over two weeks and 200 miles. Well, as I was reading your book and I was riding along in the car, I happened to catch a, a thing from NPR's All Tech Considered on the radio. And I'm going and to read you a little excerpt from that uh, about a new device called Oculus Rift. Do you know this? No, I'm not familiar with Oculus Rift. Okay, well, then this should be it. Here's a quote from correspondent Noah Nelson. To completely understand what the Oculus Rift is like, you have to strap it on your head. Even if you experienced VR years ago, this is a leap forward in technology. The headset itself is lighter than you might expect, only about as heavy as a scuba mask. Only instead of enabling underwater breathing, the Rift filled my vision with another world. The resolution isn't retina quality, but holds an older model iPhone two inches from your face and you'll have a sense of what you're looking at. At the Rift, screen looks just like. In fact, imagine that it filled your peripheral vision as well. The Rift fits snugly to my head, and with headphones on, I was effectively sealed off from the real world. Looking down, I could see my virtual body. The urge to raise my hands was irresistible, but the hands didn't move. There's actually ways to make this happen, just not in this particular game. The sense of being in, not just looking at, another world was strong, reinforced by the sound of my character's breathing. The game itself was a fairly simple arcade-style dogfight simulation, but my mind raced with the possibilities of what could happen if a team was able to dedicate a year or more, and lots of money, to the development of this kind of experience. So, right on to your book.
1: Well, the technology that I describe in The Sensory Deception is... Developable. There's nothing in there that's that's especially uh, mind blowing. The issue is whether it would work, and there's evidence that it would. It's wonderful to have Oculus Rift develop this technology and the sensory deception. I envision for the headset um, a motorcycle mask with a complete a motorcycle helmet with a complete headset and wireless connection. Um, There are there exists evidence that the fundamental concept would work. And that concept is sensory saturation. And mm-hmm. the idea behind that is that if all of your, as your senses are saturated, almost, but not quite to the point of overwhelming them, our minds react immediately. And when we're reacting like that, it becomes impossible to engage reflective thought. Mm-hmm. And that's, Much closer to the mindset that um, the smarter mammals like polar bears and whales and dogs and wolves experience. Just this immediate acceptance of reality and having to react to it on a time scale of 5 to 10 seconds rather than for people with well-developed frontal lobes where we can respond
0: to it on the scale of decades. Mm -hmm. So you see this as a potential – your book – the outline of it is based on real science and real technology and who knows in a few years. It actually came backwards, but I was quite gratified that,
1: <laughs> that after I thought of it and developed the plot and started doing some research that I came across um, some virtual reality research that is done. There's a guy named Jeremy Balenson at mm-hmm. Stanford who has a little a little VR um, on his website that you can go and, and – um, Pretend to be a lumberjack and cut down redwood trees, and the results that he reports is that after doing so, people tend to develop more empathy for forests and and sustainable
0: lumber, or start singing about "I'm a lumberjack," or yeah, and and that <laughs> that's where okay. I went immediately. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So let's look at the rest of the team. We've met Gloria and her bear persona. Who are the other people? Farley, Farley, Farley Rutherford is the is a
1: natural born leader. He's he's the guy that um, women want to be with and men want to be. Right. He's oh. just he's just got something about him. He's a he's charismatic. Um, he's he's a natural born leader. And I developed him in my mind. He's he he looks he's Farley Mowat, transformed into Silicon Valley in the. In the um, 2010s. Mm-hmm. But that that was my idea. And then um, I'm a big fan of Farley Mowat. I've read most of his books. And Never Cry Wolf is my favorite all-time book. Mm-hmm. So I had this vision of you know this tall, bearded guy with a sort of wry grin and a sparkle in his eye. But to make him a natural-born leader, I infused him with a man that I really admired who, um, who I worked for at Fermilab on the D-Zero experiment – Paul Granis is a professor at Stony Brook, I think. And um, he was the spokesman for the experiment. And he had this really deep voice. Um, he wasn't a tall guy. But when he spoke, he had a – the way he spoke just made you listen to him. Even if you didn't care what he was talking about, you would find yourself paying attention. So that's that's where I got the idea for Farley as a – a natural born leader a commanding presence a commanding presence that is is na- somewhat naive and and
0: flawed yes well they all have their flaws we we find out about a lot about that in fact probably the one who's the most flawed would you agree is chopper chopper is the bad guy yeah well he's more than that he's a he's a man who suffers and has suffered from childhood from Migraines, uh, who has – is really a sociopath. He does not understand the empathetic relationship most people have with each other.
1: That's right. Yeah. I think when I, when I developed this book, especially after the first draft and the way, I, the way I write, I write the first draft as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. So the first draft for this book came out in four months. And when I was looking at it, it occurred to me that the success of this book really depends on the villain, on Chopper. Um, Romeo Chopper Vittori. Right. And so Chopper is tortured and, uh, yes, essentially imperfect. He is a sociopath. And his, his one guiding light is his friendship with Farley. Right. And, it, and it proves to be his undoing. Now, the interesting thing about Chopper is that I based him hopefully very loosely on myself when I was 10 or 11.
0: Uh, okay, well was, now you've got to, I'm going to stop you right here okay. and have you read from page 90 to 91 about when he's a child and he's living in Las Vegas. I never lived in Las Vegas. Well, you know what I'm in, I in, in, near the in the desert. Chopper had started
1: getting migraines as a child. In Vito Vittori's household, pain unaccompanied by obvious illness had not been an acceptable excuse for evading responsibility, whether that responsibility was as simple as taking out the trash or as essential to family status as making the football team. Hitting drills in the Las Vegas sunshine with a jackhammer behind his left eye had made Vito's youngest son, Romeo, his toughest. Vito hadn't liked that name any more than Romeo had, When he was eight years old, his father started calling him Chopper. It was a proud moment in both of their lives. It happened on a Sunday morning after mass. On the drive home, his brothers had been calling him Juliet in the back seat, with 12-year-old Vito Jr. on one side and and the 10-year-old twins Enrico and Nino on the other. Eight-year-old Romeo sat motionless as his brothers punched his arms, shoulders, legs, and ribs with increasing severity. With every punch, Vito Jr. said, Juliet is toughing up, toughening up. If he can take this next one, then the three boys hit him again and again until Vito Jr. said, he's still a girl. The torture ended when the car stopped and the boys piled out of the back seat. Romeo lagged behind. As his three brothers climbed the stairs to the front door, Romeo sprinted up and hurled his eight-year-old body at the backs of their knees, a classic chop block. Vito Jr. collapsed over him, somersaulting down the stairs and landing with a separated shoulder. The impact knocked Enrico into a wall and chipped his tooth. Nino crashed into and over the banister and landed with a broken arm. That was when Vito Sr. christened Romeo Chopper. Not only was it the last time his brothers picked on him, it was the last time he tolerated disrespect from anyone. It was also the first time that Chopper disappeared. He ventured into the desert east of their Las Vegas home with nothing but a Swiss Army knife in his pocket. He returned famished and sunburned three days later. No one asked where he'd been. He could see the relief on his mother's eyes, but instead of talking to him, she'd looked to the side and taken direction from his father, who either respected Chopper's desire for isolation or refused to
0: encourage attention getting behavior. Mm-hmm. See, the psychologist in me loves that part because you give a background there. But you're saying it's part you. Is, this is, is yeah, any I, of this? Well, the know? migraines are. Ah. Being
1: a, a kid trying to make a football team and with migraine headaches was, was,
0: was really difficult. Right. Well, especially
1: the, being a little kid.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, the, the full-grown chopper carries a yellow tackle box around with him filled with different lotions and potions kinds of stuff. And uh, that's a way of treating his migraines. Well, Chopper carries his.
1: his Chopper is a, a neurologist, an MD neurologist. And he carries around his tackle box sometimes when he goes on these trips, just wandering around wandering around in the woods. With his of, Swiss Army knife as his tackle
0: box, right? Yeah, right. Um,
1: and as a child, I spent my youth wandering around the hills of Mount Diablo, the foothills. Mm hmm. Um, and sometimes spending a, a couple of days for no reason. I did, certainly didn't have any deprived childhood. Um, my mother was always very good to me. Did you have older brothers? Who you? No, had? no, no, just a sister. No, it's all exaggeration, <laughs> right? That's where the way characters develop. Okay. Um, though those three brothers were based on uh, the brothers of a friend of mine's who who I slept over at his house a lot, and they picked on him mercilessly right. until one day. When they stopped picking on him, because because he he'd finally fought back. Fought back. Right. Yeah. So the tackle box uh, chopper carries uh, various pharmaceuticals, and they include they include migraine drugs. They also include his cigarettes. Um, I thought it was fun to have an environmentalist, a radical environmentalist, who smokes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just I just kind of love the irony
0: of that. Well, he's also a caffeine addict. Thing. Yeah,
1: or, or aficionado, I guess you could say, right? They all are yeah. to some level. Yeah. yeah, I'm not, but the the characters are. The, I, this is something that I see a lot at at very small startups
0: in Silicon Valley because they're fueling themselves through the night with caffeine. They're
1: working out. They're work. They're basically never not working. Right.
0: Okay, we've got one other member
1: of the immediate team, Ringo. Ringo. Yes. Ringo Hayes, Reginald Ringo Hayes. So Ringo is based on a guy I went to college with whose name I can't remember. And he was, he was the guy who, who was always right, knew everything, but was really very – just had the kindest heart. He was just the nicest guy and when he corrected you, he would always go way around it just to make sure that you knew what was right but not in, not in a way that would make it seem like he was actually Correcting you, he's not confrontational. Just yeah, yeah, definitely not confrontational. So Ringo is the the well, the African American Uber geek is the way that the way that Gloria describes him. Right. So he's really the genius behind it. He's the the technical genius. Where Farley is the big idea guy, and Chopper develops the high level concepts of what need to be implemented. Ringo does the hardware and software. And um, Farley, the leader, and Chopper, the associate, they, they both then bow and, and contribute whatever software and hardware work they can that needs to be done. Of course, the team is ridiculously small to actually develop this amount of technology in I thought it was 14 the, months the
0: garage mentality of you know a couple guys
1: sitting around a, a workbench it is it is the garage mentality but it would take a lot more than than three people work in 24-hour days to develop this product in in 14 months but in a novel um I like to have really complete characters and having a lot of really complete characters just makes it long and boring mm-hmm. to me so mm-hmm. the fewer the better. So that's one spot where I, I sort of made allowances. And so Ringo is ridiculously talented. He's also a comic book geek. Right. And he developed some of his most interesting software based on the ideas of his favorite comic book character, who was Daredevil. Right. Who I did not know much about. I had to look him up, frankly. Daredevil was blind. And and where the movie the movie didn't do justice to Daredevil's greatest. Um, attribute, which was his wisecracking ability, Daredevil was a big wisecracker who could see more or less the way that bats do with echolocation. He was also one who stood up for the little guy
0: just like Gringo does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, Daredevil was a, was certainly and, one of my f- two favorite superheroes. Yeah, and he was blinded by radioactive. Waste, as I read, as I read, yes,
1: yeah. It's always some radiation. Is it once the cause of the of the super ability and the cause of the disability, or
0: you radiate the the spider and then that bites you or whatever, right? Right That's for Spider Man, yeah. yeah, his Spidey abilities, yeah, yeah, Spidey. So the the conflict which you begin quite early on in the book when they're looking for money comes between the venture capitalists who want products that. Are going to have a high profit margin, right. and the environmental uh, geek who wants to have everybody find out, you know, and 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 bond with the animals and become more aware of the world as a result. So there's this constant um, manipulation. Is that a good word that's going on? But from the money
1: people, it's an attempt. Yeah, it's yeah. an attempt to manipulate them and to and to put the team in position. Their goal is to develop a network of. Environmental volunteers who are very, very um, dedicated. Mm -hmm. And of course when they go for money, they need money to develop the technology from the demo and to get it out there. And then once it's out there, they believe that it will generate this huge network of environmentalists and, and change people's politics really fundamentally. Um, but, of course, the venture capitalists want the bottom line. Right. And the bottom line is that if you can convince somebody that they're a polar bear, then, boy, you can put them in a – make them an NFL player, make them – put them in, um, in a war, you know, right. uh, put them in a NASCAR. And so there's a lot of really natural high-money potential applications. But the team feels that if they developed any of those – that no one would go for the nature experiences. So they won't. They simply won't. It's their condition. And
0: the VCs just keep pushing on them and pushing on them. Well, the one th- flaw that I saw in their plan was at least it, how it's outlined here is you have to have a helmet or a, an immersion tank or whatever you know, delivery system. It's a one-at-a-time experience. Yeah. And at least when Gloria has the experience, it takes her a day at least to recuperate physically for the 200 miles she has, you know, managed to swim. And I can't see that that's going to, you know, resonate really quickly around the world. Whereas the money people want to have it be something like you'd see like in Disney World or something where everybody's in the theater at once, et cetera, et cetera, right?
1: Right. It doesn't scale. It
0: it scales more like uh, video games.
1: In an arcade, mm-hmm. than like um, than like a movie mm-hmm. with various
0: Dolby products to because make it more. The realistic. idea that every home user would have these this uh, helmet with all this technology is certainly you know decades away. The helmet could be marketable. It you know if they could get the price
1: down to three hundred four hundred dollars, that would be fine. But it it's still not the complete experience. Mm-hmm. For the complete experience, they have to go to an arcade. Where they would be put into an immersion tank, where all of the senses could be act, could be excited, not just hearing and and vision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. So that's right. They it's it doesn't scale well. And the, uh, the the inventors don't see that. The inventors are interested. Get wrapped up as as tends to happen with with techies. They get wrapped up in in the the technology itself. And the delivery system as, as a, in, a, in a sort of video game arcade, they, they plan to have them in you know, every major city mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But in the end, without, without acquiescing to, to developing what they call the Disney apps, the NASCAR app and the, um, the, War, the Warcraft app and what have you. Or the superhero app. Or the superhero app, which Ringo would rather like to develop. But without those, they don't have enough funding, so they only are able to open one arcade, though it is
0: very successful. Right. You are listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where tonight's conversation is with physicist and novelist, Ransom Stevens, and his newest novel, The Sensory Deception. In the first half hour, we have met the team who have created a paradigm-shifting virtual reality experience – So the question is, is developing your characters, you've added a depth to them as we go along through the book. And the way that I noticed you did this was just like the excerpt we read about the childhood of, you know, having the fight with the brothers and meeting his parents who are, to put it mildly, um, certainly the father is not a very empathetic person. And then we meet other sets of parents. And they are even more complex with histories that their children are carrying on, uh, you know, really in, almost like they've inherited this uh, responsibility from their parents.
1: In some cases, yeah. 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 So I know a lot about these characters, and it's very difficult, I think, certainly for me and for lots of authors, not to just write backstory, mm-hmm. not just to go in and tell you
0: everything about them. Uh, yeah, one, but there's lots of. But you didn't upload you know front load the book with that right and i'm giving you tremendous credit for that because right. that's a you know mistake that that authors are making way too commonly now everyone makes it in their first draft well i mean you know well you know on their fifth book kind of authors so it's it's a it's a hazard i
1: think that it's much more powerful to allude to the characteristics of characters and then have them emerge in a sort of rationed way, mm-hmm. with you know withholding information, is is a page turning attribute. And um, my primary goal when I write a book is to have people finish it, mm-hmm. because I'm not a big book finisher. I mean, I read and I'll give at least 50 pages to any book that I buy. But if I, if I'm not really into it, and I find myself putting it down, I'll definitely pick something else up. Now, I never mean. To not finish a book. Right. But I might be six books along and look back at it and think, well, I can't go back to it now. I've forgotten everything that was going. So I don't want my readers to experience that. So the w- information I withhold, I I do my best to ration it back out. And um, character attributes are are the most – are some of the most fun. And – the things that are on the cutting room floor about the characters um, you know i really wish they could get in there in fact there's there's one that actually stuck in in the about the author after the mm-hmm. at the end of the book just because it didn't make it in there and i really I, you know it was a it's darling. one of the
0: babies you want to just keep alive yeah. yeah yeah well one of the characters i really enjoyed meeting was our cab driver Tahir yes tahir is um gloria's father and yeah
1: tahir is uh, biological father Yes, yes. Yes. Her biological father. And um, so Tahir uh, is – they're Iranian. And Tahir and his wife and their baby, who is Gloria, the venture capitalist scout, they were in Iran uh, during the time of the Iranian revolution in 1979. And Gloria was a baby then. And they're Iranian Jews. And so they suffered um, a lot of discrimination. And Tahir had a unique – idea about how to how to avoid that discrimination and the way he did it was to disguise his family as um being being proper Iranian muslims and being and actually managing to join um the Iranian army when it went to war with Iraq and then uh he's a badass guy and he he defected to Iraq and managed to um to Smuggle his wife and daughter to Iraq, where he joined the Republican Guard, thinking that this guy, Saddam Hussein, you know anything's better than being persecuted um, in Iran, and then, of course, after being there for uh, several for a few years, realized that, boy, this really wasn't any better, and then when the United States uh, defended Kuwait, um, then Tahir managed to defect to the United States. And smuggle his family eventually to the u s mm-hmm. where this uh you know this badass commando sort of guy really didn't have any of the tools to survive in a um American civilization, and that seems to not be too uncommon for um people with those sorts of skills, so he ended up driving a cab for he's a cab driver in San Francisco and Oakland, mm-hmm. and his marriage fell apart um about a year after they arrived. In the Bay Area, and his wife married um, a high-tech an engineer who became Gloria's adored stepfather. So Tahir will do anything to win, to win in the eyes of his daughter. And so he does make a lot of sacrifices mm-hmm. for her in this book, not the least of which is agreeing to act as a guide for Farley and Chopper as they go
0: in search of a sperm whale off of uh, the Horn of Africa. Okay, the obvious question, and you I imagine you're going to hear this over and over in the next few weeks. Moby Dick, the quest for the sperm whale. Iconic. Iconic. And what you have to do is the same problem that Melville had. He wanted to present a tremendous amount of factual data about something that most readers know little. In his case, it was, you know, whaling and all of that. So every other chapter, do you remember how the, the book is mm-hmm. structured, is a kind of a encyclopedic approach to, you know, what you do with the blubber or how you, you know, render it on the deck or how you chase the whale with the boats, etc., or how you, you know, splice the, uh, the uh, hawsers. And you have the same problem because you're trying to you know, give a tremendous amount of technical information with technical jargon to very naive readers, but you interpolate that much more easily than
1: than in Moby Dick did. The the science and technology and the sensory deception I think is is pretty well integrated. Now, as a scientist, when when I when I write a novel, and it was certainly true with my first novel, The God Patent. That my contract, at least in my mind with my readers, is that the plot will be premised on accurate science and that science will be described hopefully in as accessible a fashion as – well, in an accessible fashion. And so I work really hard on making it accessible. But you're right. Integrating it is difficult. And so in my first book, I vowed that there would never be more than three pages in a row of science. And the Century Deception – it was easier. I didn't have to make such a vow. There were just times in the book where the reader needed to know what was going on. And depending on which character's point of view I was in, I would elaborate. And there's a couple of cases there where where I'm in Ringo's point of view. And remember, Ringo is the, the uber geek engineer. So being in his point of view, and he's sort of quiet and easygoing, and he just start describing things and nobody else in the room is listening. Which I think gives my reader you know, license to sort of skim it if they're not really interested in it. I think that's important in a book where, where, you know, one of the things I really try to do is attract readers who like popular science and like to read novels mm. and hopefully give them both, right? Any novel you pick up is going to be a story with a plot and characters, hopefully, good in all cases. Well, I'll throw National Geographic in there too. Yes, 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 exactly. So when, when Ringo's describing technology and nobody's listening, then it's somehow telegraphed that if you're into this, keep reading. If you're not, skim to the you know just skim through and move along with the plot. Um, it's not very long though those bits, and I really like the technology. So um, that's one of the things that, that I spend a lot of time revising is is getting the uh, the absolute minimum in there that will deliver this promise. That the science will be there, it will be accurate and reasonably complete, but also that it's a novel. Right. You know, this, is, this is a novel. It's, this is
0: escapism and relax and enjoy the ride. But you've got botany. You've got uh, biology. You have ecology. You have um, anthropology, uh, cultural and social that we can look at. You have uh, the politics of now. Certainly, with the pirates. I mean, there's a that wonderful. I'm going to have you read an excerpt. Can I do that? Yeah. All right. Not to give too much away. Can we can we tell people this that they're looking for the sperm whale off the yeah. coast of Africa, and this this uh, tribal leader comes to them and asks for fifty thousand dollars, right, for the right to search for the whale in their waters. Yes, the fifty thousand dollars to study his big fish. That's what he calls it. That's yes. what he calls it. So this is uh, page one seventy six, and I call it as one is a pirate, not a pirate.
1: Right, and the pirate that took that took a lot of research. That was probably the most the most um, real raw research I did since it's so far from my from my region of specialty. Mm-hmm. All right, so here we go. Say who he is and then so So Syed, Syed Hassan is a pirate and, and what he is, he's, he's in, in Somalia in 1991, Syed Bar, Mohammed Syed Bar had led an autocratic regime for 20 years and they played they played the Soviets off the Americans as so many small third world countries did. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, he basically lost all his funding and – and Somalia collapsed. The government collapsed. And this guy, uh, my character, Syed Hassan, was the son of a bureaucrat under this, this general's autocracy. And so he was educated in Britain and then came back with a degree in mechanical engineering facing this, this um, chaotic anarchy and assembled a, a village. So he's sort of the – anyway, it says so here. So Sy rambled on. It's quite simple then. There are three types of Somali pirates. First, there are those who merit the title pirate, criminals, mercenaries, thieves, and kidnappers. Second, the al-Shabaab Islamic fundamentalists who fund their various jihads through a practice of kidnapping and ransom collection. On this note, I would point out that Somalia has practiced Islam longer than any other country, longer even than the Arabs, but like everything in Africa, we have no provenance. My Muslim brothers, the Shiites and the Sunni, are my enemies because my people are insufficiently tolerant or insufficiently intolerant. Perhaps were I a better king, I would control my people's thoughts, prevent, prevent them from enjoying music and, and among those who can read literature. As we have so few men, our women acquire roles that certain interpretations of the Koran, those unburdened by an understanding of history, deem blasphemous. I have women medics, women teachers, and women farmers. He shook his head as though trying to shake unpleasant thoughts out of his mind. I am a feminist Muslim, he laughed. We are the third type of pirate, simple people living decent lives. We are devout. We follow the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him. Where we differ with the others is that we study the actual text, and his words teach us how to build the spiritual community that we have formed, We have a library and a museum, the only one I know of in Somalia. We also have a prison, which are not at all uncommon in Somalia. Right. Farley Rutherford, American entrepreneur. I am a pirate, a terrorist, and a king, and none by choice. So I ask, what are you doing in my water? And in exchange for my largesse, how will you help my people? Right. Sai Hassan. Sai Hassan. With a tendency to to act like a like a um, a tin-plated dictator with
0: delusions of grandeur, but also the responsibility of two thousand people, right? So he knows this is his uh, entree into getting funding, since the Russians have abdicated that. Uh, and uh, this is you know this is after the Americans went in and botched that, you know, Somali. Yeah. And basically, the country broke up into warlord-controlled
1: areas. It had it apparently has had been under a group of different warlords since 1991, just right after well, you, the collapse. Well, since
0: the turn, dawn of history, probably, but yeah.
1: But there was a, a, a single government of Somalia during most of the Cold War mm-hmm. that collapsed right afterward, and so there are these three types of pirates, and the first two, of course, are the most. Um, famous because they do the most damage. But the way it started was that uh, the fish – it was a fish. lots of fishing communities along the coast. Mm-hmm. But the fisheries were completely depleted by Indian, Japanese, European and American – Factory ships. Factory ships. Yeah. And so it started – the kidnapping and ransoming uh, pirate activity began as as Syed Hassan – uh, my character, Sai, um goes out and stops ships and charges what he considers a tariff, but which the rest of the world considers a ransom.
0: Right. Which, with your name, must ring a little bell, right? Well, yeah, it tends to. I always notice it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen a, a, a movie which um, just came out locally this weekend? It's called A Hijacking. And it interestingly enough, and the timing of things is just fascinating, and I just wrote a, a review of it for the newspapers. It's based about a Danish ship off the Somali coast, which is, you know, where a, a couple of three boats come up alongside. We don't see this. Everything is done in a, you know, a step back kind of a in-your-head kind of mentality where we see what's happening in the boardroom when the $50 million ransom is proposed. And what's happening to the sail? The seven sailors who are on the ship. It's a fascinating film, not for everybody because it's very intellectual in your head, not action oriented. But there's a character in there called Omar, who is very. We think might be very much like Said. He claims he is only a negotiator who has been hired by the pirates because he speaks English, but he seems to know a lot more than just an interpreter would. So I'm wondering if he's not similar to your. So you have to see the film anyway. I recommend film. you better see the film. Yeah, and so and we, we can talk about it. So the movie, movie's called A Hijacking. So that's a complete aside, but worth searching out and watching. The um, see this is the po- and the other politics you get into is the the rainforest devastation when um, Chopper takes one of his walkabouts. We'll call it. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes down to uh, the rainforest, and as he's going up the river to get to the part where he's searching out a particular plant, which he's researched and found may give him some benefits for his migraines, um, he sees the devastation that's being wrought with the clear-cutting and the burning, you know, to turn uh, beautiful, lush rainforest into uh, agricultural fields for a short-term return. Sugar plantations. Yeah, exactly. And that becomes very important as the book goes on. But as we're going up the river, he's, his reactions, his visceral reactions are, I want to kill all these son of a guns, right? Yeah, yeah. That's Chopper. Chopper's essential belief
1: is that um, the planet would be better off without people on it. So he has he, – the only human life that Chopper values is the leader, his friend Farley. Mm-hmm. He's the only one anyone else is immaterial just part of the
0: disease that plagues earth right in chopper's mind he's also very attuned when chop when Farley is not uh doesn't like what he does
1: yeah he's he's dependent on on Farley for um whatever
0: positive feedback he gets in life right right so there's a there's another interesting thing I happen to be at a at a an announcement for one of my fellow writer's Tom Kendrick, who wrote a book about sea urchin diving, and I helped him work on the book, and he's just got a movie option on it. So when we were there, he showed this picture of a friend li- riding the back of a uh, sea elephant, you know, 800-pound thing. So when I read this in your book, I said, oh, aha, look, it's just like this guy, because that's what Chopper does to check out at one of his new uh, concoctions to see if it's actually going to make the huge animal be happy instead of, uh, you know, and relaxed and Easy to work with rather than uh, the big, you know,
1: fierce beast that he usually would be. Right. One of, one of the problems that um, Chopper has to solve is that to develop the, these nature experiences, the team has to attach equipment to the animal to record their sensory data. Mm-hmm. And so they have, to, they have to attach a lot of sensors to a sperm whale. And in order to test whether to do that, they, of course, have to sedate the animal. But they are environmentalists. So they will go to extremes not to hurt the animal. Certainly they'll risk their lives rather than risk hurting the animal. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that Chopper develops is rather than to try to tranquilize a whale, which would probably kill it because whales need to be conscious in order to breathe. Um, Or they'll drown. Or they'll drown, right? So what he does is he he basically develops drugs that give them a euphoric high that will hopefully make them tolerate having somebody walk around on them and attach equipment. So to test it, he he does a smaller dose and tests it on a giant sea lion in Santa Cruz where
0: much of the book is set. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the book is set around the, the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. Um Greenpeace pay, plays a role mm-hmm. because uh, Farley had been working with them on the whaling boat because of his history with his father. Right. Right, which they can read about, right? We yeah. don't have to go into. Um, the captain, the one who has the money to build the big, beautiful – is this a real place that you have in mind of? Uh, Santa Cruz.
1: There, yeah, yeah. There's. It's actually there seems to be a trend in my books. There's always some really <laughs> neat house where the where the characters live. And uh, my first book, the the house is uh, one of the Victorians in Petaluma, and this one is a, a really uh, majestic craftsman that's on Cliff Drive ah. in Santa Cruz. Though not not at exactly the same location as in the book. It's it's not right over the bluff. It doesn't have the bluff with the beach below. Not no no no. It's not no. quite that oceanfront. Yeah. But yeah, Chopper or, or rather – it was Farley's grandfather who who was a, a wh- on a whaling ship and one day um, he got his own captaincy and was sailing out of the San Francisco Bay with Golden Gate f- – with Del Monte Fisheries, right. which ran the, the whaling station that I think is – was stationed at what is now Point Richmond. Mm-hmm. And um, when they had the most modern ship that had – Basically, rocket-propelled gr- grenades and complete sonar, and the, um, the battle became really one-sided. He was disgusted and quit his job and went to Santa Cruz and built a house. Right. And, of course, back then when he built it, as we all know, California real estate prices were somewhat more reasonable in the 50s and 60s when, when Farley's grandfather built this
0: majestic craftsman on the, on the bluffs and on Cliff Drive. Couldn't do it today for – although they put $8 million into the place, but you can't see it. At least they, from outside, you can't see it. Right. Right. Well, $8 million of, of bit error ratio testers and spectrum analyzers <laughs> and oscilloscopes. Right. I wondered why they didn't lease it myself, but whatever.
1: Leasing is just not that much cheaper. Isn't it? No. no. It's oh. cheaper to buy the stuff used.
0: Okay. Oh, OK. And off the shelf. Yeah, but that got
1: cut. A lot of those little details about – how they how they've dealt with their budget, you know those. It's boring details. It's got to go. But I need to understand it when I'm writing the book, so it makes it in early drafts.
0: Okay. Uh, now this is the time we're going to transition over. As you know, I often like to do on this show, is the for the writers out there, mm-hmm. any clues, tips, uh, pieces of information you want to share?
1: Sure. I think that the most important thing for um, a writer of either fiction or nonfiction, but Specifically fiction is um what I call the value of exposing yourself that you have I, to get I, I'm,
0: you have you've got to explain that carefully now right the value I had of an exposing entirely different, different picture <laughs>
1: <laughs> right exactly it's a it's a nice title for a talk that i'm I'm going to give at some of the writers' clubs around around Northern California as long as you don't wear a trench coat when you go oh, no. up in the front okay I'm way too shy to do that It's hard enough to stand up there, but the um The value of exposing yourself, especially right now, is that if you don't put your material out there, then no one will see it. seems pretty obvious. But there's two ways really – there's lots of ways to do it. But there's really sort of the traditional way, which is to um, submit stories to literary reviews. And if you get one accepted for every hundred submissions, you're doing really well. So that's a lot of overhead. For not a tremendous amount of exposure. Mm-hmm. The other way is, of course, to self-publish an e-book, which is what I originally did. And having that and then push on it, promote it, and then getting the exposure and having people read it. You never know who will read it. And so um, the success that I've experienced – such as it is, all comes from the decision to upload an e book in 2009 mm-hmm. and then push on it really hard. I gave out bookmarks for an e book, well, which I'm, was. I'm going to
0: interject here. You wrote a good book. Yeah. That's hopefully. the first important part of that, right? You know, because there's stuff that's being e uh, printed that's not ready for reading yet. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah. Quality is the first thing. And, and here's something that I think is important to understand and that is the subjective nature of, of literature, mm-hmm. which means to me that you have to get everything right where there is a clear right and wrong. Now, it's OK. you know, A few typos aren't going to kill anybody. Um, but the plot needs to make sense. Clarity is the first thing. Make your story work. Make it smooth and then get the art going. But above some threshold of skill and the ability to tell a clear story, everything's subjective above mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But below that, you have to get to that threshold, so that requires a lot of um, craft, a lot of study, both a lot re- of seat time, a lot of well, a lot of writing and reading and taking classes and reading books on the craft. I'm a I'm a craft junkie. I just love reading. Um, I feel like I'm getting building an arsenal when I read a good book on characterization or on developing plots and what have you. I, I just I just love it. I feel like I'm acquiring tricks and hiding them off and then using them. Mm-hmm. But that's that's very important. Yeah. You don't want to expose something that's not good. But good is subjective to a certain level. The objective part you have to nail and that's clarity.
0: Right. So do you have an editor you work with on these?
1: These um, – I the, my first novel went through the San Francisco Writers Workshop, right. um, which meets every Tuesday. And that is the very workshop where Khaled Hussaini developed the Kite Runner. Right. Um, so that was terrific. I have at least 20 people that read manuscripts. Um, the Century Deception – was acquired by Forty Seven North. Actually they acquired both the God Patent and the Sensory Deception. So they gave me they gave me developmental editors, a copy editor, and two proofreaders mm-hmm. went through it. So it went through the whole traditional publishing process.
0: You did the rewrites and everything else? Oh, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It was really wonderful. It was wonderful experience. Especially the the proofreading and the, the copy editing because I just saw all of my mistakes disappear. It was like, you know, I, I'm not an English teacher. I do my best with grammar, but I'm not. I I rely on other people to help me get that right. And having a copy editor read it and just seeing, oh, oh, yeah, I knew I'd screwed up lay, laid, and lie. Who doesn't? <laughs> but they just seeing those kinds of mistakes disappear and it just develops this sense of confidence and strength that... While I may be an idiot, I won't appear like one in this
0: book. You definitely do not. Uh, the, uh, the book is very well crafted. Uh, you care about the characters. The only quibble I have is opening with that one scene where we find out about the bad guy where I would not have done it. You know, who's going to be the bad guy? Because it's a, kind of a flashback at the beginning. And I, right. don't know, I don't know if that was your idea or your editor's idea or whatever, but I would have just as soon waited to find that out.
1: It was my idea and, and I'll tell you the reason I did it. It was sort of a, an experiment of, of my own. My, my, um, one of my mentors, Tamim Ansari, once said that um, suspense is not mystery, that the juice is not in having things happen that are a surprise. Mm-hmm. It's a surprise in how they happen, mm-hmm. suspending that. And so I really did want, want people to know – I wanted the reader to know what was going to happen before the book started. And Because it's suspense. It's not mystery. So that's why I did it. I also really like books that – The old that,
0: Hitchcock uh, definitions for both in fact. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Right. So I love books that start sort of in the present and then go back and build you up and, and take you back to that present. And so I did that and I did it with the tense too, which actually the the editor pushed back a little bit. On the change of tense because it starts in the present tense. Mm-hmm. It goes to the past tense and is in the past tense for 300 pages or so and then goes back to the present tense. Isn't
0: that funny? I didn't know this a ship back. I have to look at it again. Yeah. Oh, good. Good for me. Interesting, yeah.
1: And um, every virtual reality scene is in the present tense. Right. To bring you up as a, as a technique to bring you closer to the action to make it more sort of virtual reality and
0: to set it off. From the other pieces. Well this has been delightful. Ransom Stevens, the book is called The Sensory Deception. It came out yesterday. And so they can find it where can they find it? Bookstores and online and Yeah, should
1: be able to find it anywhere you find your books. Okay. Thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Gil. I really appreciate it.
0: You have been listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where tonight's conversation was with physicist and novelist Ransom Stevens about his newest novel, The Sensory Deception. Our studio engineer is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Mansur. We invite you to tune in at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, September 4th, for a special back-to-school show. Until then, we hope you will stay cool on these hot August nights.